in the back? No? My husband's saying no, and he can't hear me. No, I can't be heard. <laughs> okay, so there we go. Yes, you're going to bring up the PowerPoint. Maybe a few more lights in here so people can look at their Bibles. There we go. Is that better? Okay, thank you. Um, thank you all for coming tonight. I'm assuming that you're all interested in the walls coming down, which I, this never even struck me, I promise it. This thought never struck me until I left church this morning and an older gentleman was standing out there, somebody with much more wisdom than me, and he said, that is really ironic that you keep talking about walls coming down and every politician is talking about walls going up. <laughs> the irony of it all. Yeah. Well, we're not talking about those kind of walls. So, But thank you all for coming out. Um, I hope that you'll be blessed by this message. Before we pray, I just want you to know that the way that these messages come to be is I just start studying the Bible. I start, you know, I read and study the Bible, and the Lord kind of lays on my heart, Shelly, that's something you really need to dig into. You really need to explore more. And then he tells me, okay, and I'll share it with them. So that's what this is about. You know, it's just born out of my own studies and my own uh, conviction as the Holy Spirit works with me on something, and he has worked with me on this lately. So just so you know, it comes from experience, and um, that's a good thing. The Holy Spirit is faithful, amen? And that was a perfect song to sing, because all we want is his spirit, his word to be honored, and just to speak it forth and let him work. So would you bow your heads with me if you would? Lord Jesus, I want to thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. I want to thank you that you are still working. You're still saving people. You're still growing people. I think of uh, the great baptismal service here at Norman Alliance this morning and all the young and the old that you are working in. We just thank you so much. We ask your Holy Spirit to please open up our hearts. We know that you're present with us. And God, I know, and every person sitting in this sanctuary knows, that we have walls that need to come down. If we're honest with ourselves before you, there are sinful thought patterns, there are habits, there are things in our life that are holding us back from being who we should be for you and from moving forward. And we are praying that you will bring down those walls. So thank you for being present this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, well, here's the deal. I, I used this when I announced the service a few weeks ago, but I'm going to bring it up again. It's A.B. Simpson. He's the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And his quote about really the book of Joshua struck me, and it really gets to the heart of what this is about. He said that even the most superficial observer must have noticed in the records of Christian experience and the observation of life that there are two very distinct types of Christians in the world. In every age, one representing an experience of despondency, anxiety, doubt, inconstancy, and frequent declension. How many of you have ever felt yourself in that group today? <laughs> you know, we, we find ourselves there, okay? He said it's a life so unsatisfying as to make you question whether it's really worth everything that it costs to be a Christian when you live so up and down and so under everything all the time. And I've definitely been there. And he says, then there's another kind of Christian that seems to be full of confidence, victory, joy, satisfaction, power, and stability. 
Now, I know what A.B. Simpson's trying to say, and not everybody stays at any of those two places all the time, but I'd like to be more in the second category, correct? So he goes on to say, and this is true, there's never been a period in the history of the church without those two kinds of classes of disciples. So we're not talking about the saved versus the unsaved here. We're talking about a type of Christian versus another type. And he notes that even the apostles passed from one stage into the other. And if you've ever read the Gospels in the book of Acts, you see that, right? I mean, Peter was one crazy, type A, up and down, failing personality before he was filled with the Holy Spirit and became an overcomer. Amen? And Peter gives me hope. It's why he's my favorite guy. You know, everybody knows, you know, when I get to heaven, I want to meet Jesus. But then I I also want to run up and give Petey a big hug because you gave me hope, Petey, you know, that I could change. So... A.B. Simpson goes on to say, there's not a congregation of Christians on earth today but contains the same two classes of Christians. The people who simply come out of Egypt and are wandering around in the wilderness. You're saved, but man, you're, you're not there. You're just wandering around, okay? With the hope of salvation and a measure of grace sufficient to separate you from the world. And on the other hand, you have people who've been filled with the Spirit and are walking in the light and the joy of the Lord, okay? So let's establish that it is a truth that we fall into one of these two categories mainly. Uh, Taking the lowest view of it, who is there who's not felt the need for something deeper and higher in his Christian life? Today? Yeah, even today, like I felt that. Who is there who's not wept over his failures and humiliation and reached out for a purity and power worthy of the cost of the grandeur of God's great salvation? Right? That's me. Who is there who's not felt that there must be something higher than a life of sinning and repenting. Anybody? Okay? It seems like you're in that cycle. Uh, we want to rise above the evil that, that we hate and realize the holy aspirations which constantly struggle in our soul. And because of that, what we're going to do is we are going to go straight to the Bible, Old Testament. We're going to review the history of God's people, okay, the Israelites, because they represent us, because Jesus said that you and I in here, if we are Christians, are all sons and daughters too of Abraham by adoption. So what God showed and did to the Israelites, he can show and do for us. So we go back to the book of Exodus where we find our friends, the Israelites, all right, slaves in the land of Egypt through a certain set of circumstances. There they are, right? And was this a good life? No. This was a very bad life. I can't even imagine waking up every day and knowing that there was no hope of anything but me slaving for someone else's uh, profit, and I never gain anything from it, and I will never have any freedom, and I wonder if that's the day my back is going to be beaten, right, or someone I love is going to be killed because they're, they're, they're barely taken care of and their life is so hard. And I mean, they worked in mortar and heavy labor. Every baby that was born... I mean, you would have joy that your child was born, but you knew what was going to happen to that child, and there was just no hope. It was a terrible situation. And so you remember how God intervened when the Israelites cried out. God faithfully intervened, and he sent Moses, and he sent the ten plagues. And we're all familiar, I hope, with the fact that none of the first nine plagues worked, as heinous as they were, right? I mean, you know, if you cover my house with frogs, I'm... I'm going to do something, you know, it's, it's going to be enough. But it wasn't enough. In God's providence, the only thing that worked was the death of the firstborn. Do you remember? 
Death is how God freed his people. Why is that? Because it's a picture of the death of Jesus being the only way that we can be set free. Amen? If you can't see that the Old Testament is in picture form of the theology of the new, you are very, very poor in your hearts. I mean, you need to be built up in that. You need to read the Old Testament and see these pictures. Um, So God sends the death of the firstborn, and he says to the Israelites, your firstborn will die also when I, God, send the death angel to your door, unless you take a lamb without blemish or defect, you slit its throat, you paint the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of your house. If you do that, my people, then death will pass by. Remember that? And that's a beautiful picture of the blood of Jesus Christ being painted over our hearts. If you need a cross-reference for that, First Peter chapter 1, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So God set his people, free, his people free by the blood, which was going to represent the blood of Jesus. You know that they get out of um, Egypt then, and one of the very first things that happens to them is they face what? Because after you get saved, isn't it all like cake and ice cream after that? <laughs> no, okay? It gets hard. So they get out of Egypt. Pharaoh thinks, I don't know why I did what I just did. He starts chasing them down. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. The Red Sea's in front of them. The chariots are behind them. Pharaoh's coming after them again. But God keeps his promise to them, right? He parts the Red Sea. Literally parts the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. Okay, now here's where we're going to get into this discussion of what needs to happen before the walls come down. So here they are. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've come out of Egypt, and God is going to take them from Egypt to the Canaan land. Uh, In case you're not familiar with this, Egypt is representative in the Old Testament of sin. All right? Those people being stuck in slavery in Egypt is what it is like for a person to be unsaved and lost in their sin. Amen? You're a slave to sin, aren't you? You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave for Jesus Christ, one or the other. So it represents us being stuck in sin. And when God freed his people from Egypt and sent them to the Canaan land, now throughout history we have songs about it and many people think the Canaan land represents heaven. And, you know, maybe there's allusions to it there, but I hope when we get to heaven there still aren't a bunch of uh, Jebusites and Amorites and all those people in heaven. So it's more representative not of actual heaven, but of spiritual victory here on earth. Amen? This life is never going to be perfect. You're always going to face struggles. You're always going to face enemies. But yet in the midst of that, God wants you to give victory over them. Okay? So that's representative of spiritual victory as he takes them from one place to the other. Now the problem was, and I wrote a devotion once on this in my first book. It's called Why the Wilderness when I want happiness, okay? Because God took them from Egypt to the Canaan land, but he didn't take them the short route. He could have taken them the short route up along the coast, and he didn't. And if you read in the Bible, it tells us why. He said, if I take them the short route, right away they're going to run into the Philistines. And the Philistines are going to, like, discourage them so much in their ways of war against my people that they're going to turn around and want to run back to Egypt. So instead, I'm going to take them through the wilderness the long way. Now, why they got stuck there for 40 years is a different reason. Okay, we're going to talk about that. But sometimes we ask why the wilderness when I want happiness. God knows what you can handle and what you can't. God knows what will make you ultimately turn back 
or what is going to refine you. Amen? Okay, so that's an interesting point. So they find themselves, they end up wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, and that's an actual picture of what some of the wilderness is like that they wandered in for 40 years. Sometimes winter seems long, doesn't it? Can you imagine if that's what you had for 40 years? I mean, you can kind of understand that this would be difficult for them, right? But God always has a purpose in what he's doing. And if that picture reminds you of what your soul or your mind is like right now, sometimes you go through periods of questioning and dryness and wandering and wilderness. I want to share with you a scripture. Um, Now, I already told you he didn't take them the short route because he knew they'd turn back immediately. But there was a reason for the wilderness. Watch this. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. Now let me ask you a question. Did God already know what was in their heart? Did he know what they were going to do? So it's not like the testing was, oh, so God could like turn on a light switch and finally figure out what Carolyn's about. You know what I mean? He knows what she's about. It's not testing so that um, he could know what was in their heart. It's testing so that he could show them what was in their heart, in their relationship to him, okay? Now watch this, that he might make you know, and this is a critical scripture for the rest of the message, so let's make sure we understand this. We quote this a lot, but do we really get it in our heart? That you might, he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, okay? But by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In the wilderness... There were no, like, Kohl's department stores or famous footwear. You know what I mean? But God made their shoes last for 40 years. A lot of people miss that miracle back in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is glorious. Can you imagine? Made their shoes last for 40 years in that desert place. Okay, because physical things are not what steers your life. The circumstances that other people put you in are not what steers your life. The Word of God steers your life. Amen? And we've got to learn that we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And, and when I read that, I shake my head and say, oh, yeah, I'm a good little Christian. I know that I have to live by the Bible. Then I started studying this message and what I really felt about the Word of the Lord. And I saw myself in the Israelites and I said, oh, my, oh, my. This is not good. I'm really not where I thought I was. Okay, so watch this. God is testing them. He wants to show them what's in their heart, and he's going to show them that there's some sin in their heart. All right? So here we go. It starts as soon as they leave. Now, now bear with me. You've been a slave for hundreds and hundreds of years in Egypt. You watch God perform these plagues, the death of the firstborn. You are miraculously ejected out of a country that had total control over you, right? You you miraculously get set out of there. And no sooner did God keep his word to them and do that for them than they get to the Red Sea, right? And here's actually what they said. Well, tell me if this isn't you sometimes. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt if you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Who has ever said that to God? Are you just trying to kill me here, God? Why didn't you do it ten years ago? You know what I'm saying? Listen, God just killed firstborn babies, firstborn children 
Okay, with the plan of, they could have given in to the plan of redemption. But he just did all of that to set you free out of slavery. And your first assumption is, he's really taking me out here to what? To kill me. That convicted me. Because so many times in my life, I'll be living my Christian life, and I'll look at how far I've come, and then I look at a challenge in front of me, and I'm like, okay, God, so now I'm going down. Now everything's over. This is all just, everything's bad. Okay? As soon as they get out, that's what happens. Then they said, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians. (laughs) What? Are you people crazy? But should I remind you, should I remind all of us, that sin makes you say some pretty crazy stuff. Okay? The Israelites just said, wouldn't it have been better to just stay in Egypt? Okay, guys. It was just days and weeks ago that this is what happened. They were setting taskmasters over them to afflict them with their heavy burdens. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This wasn't even a kind situation. You with me? Hard labor. Really? You'd rather go back there just because the sea is in front of you? Okay, now watch this. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. God set us free. And the first obstacle they came to, this was their assumption. He brought us out here to kill us. We laugh because it's so true, right? This is incredible to me. So that was the first time. One and a half months into the journey, okay, so we're only one and a half months in now. Here's what they do. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, We wish that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Do you think that was a good rendition of what really happened when they were in Egypt? Isn't it funny what you'll look back and say, Oh, that was great. That was good. No. It wasn't short-term memory person. That was bad. You're just complaining. You're just murmuring. You're just not trusting God. Now watch this. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this, is, this whole assembly with hunger. Now here's what kept striking me as I was studying for this message. Repeatedly, 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 God's people, for whom God kept intervening and taking them past obstacles, They repeatedly kept assuming that God was out to get them. So there has to be something in the core of that that resonates with all people. And I know it does with me. I'm just going to admit it before you right now. You might look at me and say, Shelly Brindle. Oh, yeah. I can wake up on any given morning and think, God, (laughs) you know, you're out to get me. There's, There's something wrong here. You don't really have, you can't, Romans 8.28 can't possibly be true. And I excuse myself and I say, oh, well, I'm just a human. You know what I mean? But as we're going to find in this message, we shouldn't just excuse that. That very thought in and of itself is a grand and terrible sin. Sins are not just like you go to the bar and you get drunk. You know what I mean? You punch your neighbor in the nose, okay? You watch a bad program on TV. Sin is making wrong assumptions about the God 
who has your best interest in mind. Amen? So, that was one and a half months out. One year, a little over a year that they were out. I'm just giving you examples. I mean, you could read the whole thing and find many more. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. So what were they doing again? They were complaining. And God brought fire. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. You know, as they were beating us with their whips. Okay? It was great. It was great. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Nothing. I mean, we didn't even have to pay for it. Yeah, you didn't have money to pay for it because you were a slave. And you didn't have to pay for it with money. You had to pay for it with your back and your life. Right? It cost us nothing. And people say, I'm not living for the Lord. I'm not turning my life over to God. Man, God requires a lot of a person. Do you know what sin requires? You're a slave to sin. It takes everything from you. Amen? So look at how their mindset was so wrong. Then, this is the part, I shared this with the youth group. It just cracked me up. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. Man, what I wouldn't do. I would give my life as a slave and put my back to the whip if I could just sink my teeth into a good cucumber. What? It just kills me. Man, if I could stuff an onion down my throat, I'd do anything to go back to that kind of life. What? I mean, really, when you read the Bible, isn't it kind of funny? I mean, God has a sense of humor, but isn't this human nature? Okay? Oh, I'd go back into slavery if I could just eat a cucumber. I don't eat, cucumbers are okay, all right? But they've got to have ranch dressing. Okay, but now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now, that kills me, because the manna was coming down from heaven every day for them. And you know what they said about it? They said, I'm sick of this stuff. What? God was providing. I look at my life, I say, well, my house may be small. I may not have a lot. But God's providing for me every day. And how dare I say, I'm sick of this. Hey, this is, the, this is the lot that I have in life right now. This is where I've got to go. This is what I've got to do. God is sustaining me. But am I in my heart saying, man, if I could just have onions... Be a better life. Right? And I'm going to tell you what. I'm so glad to hear and see you smiling and laughing and giggling with me. And we are because it resonates with us. But what I want you to understand is this is serious, serious, damnable sin. These people are going to be punished beyond belief for believing that God did not have their best interest in mind. If the Christian life isn't a life of faith and believing that God is for you and not against you, then it's nothing. Watch this. These people, their main sin was in forgetting the promise of God. And every Christian ought to memorize Exodus 6-8. This is what God spoke to the Israelites while they were still slaves in Egypt. 
He reiterated a promise that he'd given way back in Genesis to Abram. He kept repeating it, but I love how it's spoken here. While his people were slaves in Egypt, he looked at them. He said, I know your circumstances now, but I'm telling you guys something. I am going to bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'm not only going to bring you into it, I'm going to give it to you to own. Isn't that something? And right now today, and, I want, and, and if, you, if you get on... Um, Facebook or on the website, I just wrote a devotion on this called, what's it called? Uh, who's read it? Um, who said they're going to wipe Israel off the face of the earth? That's what it's called, okay? I wrote a devotion because Iran this past Wednesday just launched ballistic missiles into the air on which was etched these words, wipe Israel off the face of the earth, Okay? And when I read that headline, the first thing that went through my mind is, praise God, the Iranians are showing that the word of God is true. And in this devotion that I wrote, and if you Google my name, get on the website, it's the most recent devotion, I trace for you throughout the Bible, including with this verse, that God has promised to give the land of Israel to his people. And that is the reason that every power of hell throughout history, from the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Nazis, the Palestinians, ISIS, that is the reason that every power in hell has tried to take that land back, because there's something to the promise. Amen? And my mind went immediately to Zechariah 14. It says that when Jesus comes back and he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives and his toes touch that mountain, That is going to be, he's going to do that because all the nations of the world will have gathered to battle against Jerusalem. And when they think that they're going to take the land, all of a sudden the toes of Jesus touch the Mount of Olives and the whole mountain splits in two. Everybody goes running, right? And Jerusalem comes into safety. Amen? Not the current political borders, it's much bigger than that. But the land of Israel, the Canaan land, belongs to God's people, which includes all of us. Amen? Who's excited? That's our land. Amen? So, let her, I mean, Iran, it's funny because when they write that on their missiles, they're just proving exactly what God said was true. All the nations will gather against. I just love it. I love that when the enemies of God say and do what they do, the only thing they do is lend credence to the truth of the Bible. Don't they realize? Well, you know? Anyway. I digress, that was a freebie. But I just wanted to say, this is an important scripture for this sermon, but also for life and living. As you watch what happens in the Middle East, hold on to this promise, right? This is a core promise. So here's what God had told them. Was he unequivocally clear here, or was this a little unclear? Maybe. I'm definitely giving you what land? The land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Am I just going to take you to it, or are you going to own it? What did he say? Okay, this was the promise. From Genesis chapter 12, the whole way through, it sweeps through to the very end of Revelation when the new Jerusalem comes down. Amen? So this was the promise. But even though they knew that, and here's where it's convicting to me, even though, I mean, I read my Bible and I study it a lot, and as Pastor Bob always says, it doesn't matter so much if you read it and study it, unless you believe it and apply it. Okay, the devil knows the Bible better than I do. And he ain't saved. All right? So here's the deal. I love to read the Word of God, but I'm convicted that I, when I read these promises, I just need to take God at His Word. 
It's really not all that complicated, is it? Well, it is because everything you're looking at makes you think that it's not going to come true, right? Because, but remember, just like Iran, everything we do, God is still sovereign. He's going to keep his promise, amen? So here's what happened. So God sets them free. I mean, he, he parts the Red Sea. He provides manna for them, brings water out of the rock. He does miracle after miracle after miracle. He keeps their shoes from wearing out, right? Then he says to Moses, have some spies go into the land of Canaan. Check out the land, not to see if you can take it. That wasn't, check out the land that I have already promised that I'm going to. You too, just go check it out and see. All right, so here's what happened. So the spies come back, the majority of them, and they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And here's the big fruit, just like you said. Okay, God, that part's true. Here's the problem, ready? There's always the however. Okay? God, I know you said in your word this. However. Okay? However. I mean, I know your promise was clear and concise. However, the people who dwell in the land are very strong and the cities are fortified and the cities are very large and besides that we saw the descendants of Anak there and Anak was like a group of people they were like giants you know really tall big people giant people I I, I know I've said this before but it just cracks me up when we first started coming to Northern Alliance and I brought my parents they just couldn't believe how many tall people came to this church my dad was like I remember my dad saying how'd they even let Joe Cox on the board you know what I mean? Well, what is all, it's the land of the descendants of Anak, okay? But, but here's, the ki- here's the killer. You know, um, they, they, they knew the promise, and God never said, I'm giving you a land where all the people are short and all the cities are going to be easy to take over. Is that what he said? Okay? He didn't say it was going to be easy, but he said, it is your land. Right? Is this mustering up some faith in some people? He God didn't say it was going to be easy for you tomorrow or two weeks from now, but he did say, here's the promise I made to you. Amen? But that was the report that they brought back. And I could add to that, I recently did a devotion too called something about grasshoppers because it kills me. The other thing that they said, they were like, and besides that, Moses, um, we think that we look like grasshoppers to them. And and we also feel like grasshoppers. <laughs> I'm thinking grasshoppers. So I started studying grasshoppers. Another freebie. You ready for this? If you were a grasshopper, Deborah, you could stand right here and jump off your legs and jump more than a football field long. One jump. That's how strong grasshoppers are, right? Isn't that cool? But they're skittish, right? So the people were like, we feel like little insects. And then my mind went immediately to Isaiah 40, where God says, every inhabitant of the world is a grasshopper to me. See, so their perspective was, we feel like grasshoppers because we feel like grasshoppers compared to them. And what God wanted them to see was, you are a grasshopper, but so are they, right? And I'm with that grasshopper, right? So we're all grasshoppers, but some of us have God on our side, Amen. So they really lacked faith in this. Now what happened next was you had a spark of faith. You had this one guy. It ends up we find out that uh, Joshua was part of this too. But the Bible records what Caleb said as one of the 12 spies. Caleb came back and he quieted the people before Moses and he said, in, in the midst of all that negativity, he goes, let us go up at once and occupy it for we're well able to overcome it. Amen? One guy, you know, well, we find out it's two out of 12. 
When you really want to live by faith, you find out you're in the minority, by the way. Everyone else looks at you like you're crazy. And you would think, oh, well, he quieted the people, and now they're probably all going to say, yeah, let's go. The mob mentality usually doesn't work that way. Okay? Yeah, he got beat down. Then the men who had gone up with him said, no, we're not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than we are. It's a land that literally devours its inhabitants. Okay? All the people that we saw in it are of great height, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Right? So even with a spark of faith, even with one person stepping up and saying, we can do it, God gave it to us, the greater majority says no, and like often happens, everybody goes with the majority, even if they're wrong. Okay, so be careful about that. I often, matter of fact, when I'm in the majority concerning anything, I get very, very scared. I actually do. I check my heart right away while I'm in the majority here. Okay, then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, watch this. This is damnable. Watch what's going to happen here. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt or that we had died in this wilderness. Watch what you wish for. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? No sword has come out of anybody's sheath or pocket yet, but their assumption was we're going to be taken down, right? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? There's cucumbers back here, people. Cucumbers. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and let us go back to Egypt. Okay? And when you choose to disbelieve, hear me on this, no matter what else you qualify or quantify as a sin, when you choose to disbelieve and turn backwards from God's will, you are in the greatest sin that you could ever be in. There is no greater sin than the sin of disbelief. True? All other sins stem from the sin of disbelief. When I covet, I'm really disbelieving that God will provide for me properly. Amen? Okay? When I gossip, I'm really disbelieving in the value of other people and the word that God spoke about relationships. Amen? Every other sin flows from the sin of disbelief. So they said, we don't believe. We know God's given us a promise. We just want to go back. We wish we'd died in the wilderness. This is no good. And I I get to that place. Do you ever? Okay? You want to give up? Here's what happened. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned. Okay, well, what happened in the meantime is Moses intervened. He said, please spare us as a people. Don't destroy the land. Don't destroy the people of Israel. And God kept his word. He said, I've pardoned according to your word, which that's a whole nother sidebar. I know. Cindy, you remember that? That's just a good phrase. In the Bible, you rarely hear God doing something according to a human's word. Isn't that interesting? But it's because Moses was so in line with the heart of God that his word was God's word, right? But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Watch what God says here. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of them. Wow. So... God is a God of judgment too, right? That's what he said. He said, 
okay, the people who do not believe me, you're not going to see that land. And I propose to you that you can go through periods of wilderness in your life as a Christian. You could be 75 years old and be a Christian, and you've never reached the promised land yet. You never reach spiritual victory. You're just still wandering around in your shoes that don't wear out. God's still taking care of you, but he says, nope, you can't get in yet. And it's not that God won't give it to you. It's you don't believe. There's no greater sin than a sin of disbelief. Believing that God will do what he said. So there was reward for belief. He said, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I'll bring him into the land. Isn't that beautiful? My prayer, since I've been studying for this sermon, is this. God, I mean, I love Petey, but make me a Caleb. Put in me a different spirit. I know I'm not going to be in the majority, even among Christians, but put in me a different spirit. Help me to follow you fully. I want to get to Canaan in this life. Amen? I mean, I know God's given me heaven, but I want Canaan here too. How many of you would like to get to the promised land? Right? Okay, so that's what, so Caleb is different. So here's a stark contrast in the outcomes, and you ask yourself where you are in this. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord. Watch this. Remember what I said, be careful what you wish, be careful what you say. He said, as I live, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies will fall in this wilderness. Wow. Now, that's the reason I've made you look at so many scriptures. Throughout this whole thing, what did the people keep saying every time they faced any problem? What did they keep saying? We, did God bring us out here to die? Did he bring us out here to kill us? What in the world is God doing? And then finally, they're so bold as to say, you know what? We wish we did die in the wilderness. We so don't believe what he's planning for our lives, right? And so then God says, and I want to say something that's very scary. It's not seeker-friendly. It's not politically correct. But God will dignify you with what you want. Right? If you want not to believe God, if you want to doubt Him constantly, and you want not to believe Him, and you want to look at every obstacle as God's out to get you, then eventually God will say, well, okay. If that's what you believe about me, God can't force you. You see what I'm saying? So this is a very scary scripture, and every Christian ought to take note of it. Your dead bodies will fall in the wilderness. You kept saying it. You kept disbelieving. Then finally you actually came out and said, I wish we would have died in the wilderness. I so don't trust the Lord. Okay, see you later. You're going to die in the wilderness. And that happens to Christians. Do you believe that? I know many Christians who die off in the wilderness. You, you, can't, you can't believe it. And I say, God, please spare me. Help me not to be that. Except Caleb and Joshua, they were the two spies that said we can't ever take the land. So God said, you can get in. Not a single another person from that generation entered the promised land. Not a single one. And before anybody in the congregation gets all, well, Shelley, that's the, I hear this all the time, that's the Old Testament. I mean, God was different in the Old Testament. Wait a second. Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ the same. Wait, wait, no. It says Jesus Christ the same after the Old Testament today and the rest of the time. Right? That's what it says. I 
Yeah, 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 it's the same God. The same Jesus. We're, we're, yeah, same one. Okay, so before you get all, oh, Shelley, that's the Old Testament. And by the way, if you say that, there's a great book that I'm recommending you read. The brother of Rush Limbaugh wrote an excellent book. It's written by David Limbaugh. It's called The Emmaus Code. It's a thick volume, and he does what I dreamed I could have done years ago, and he wrote an entire volume that shows Jesus in the Old Testament. It's beautiful. It's a great book. So before you get all, that's Old Testament, Shelley, I can't really buy what you're selling here, I'm going to take you to the book of Hebrews. Okay? Hebrews is in the New Testament. Thank you. We're going to the New Testament, people. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, right now as you're reading this, if you hear his voice, do not what? Don't harden your heart. So this is New Testament. As in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. So God can actually refer back to the Old Testament. Watch what he says. Where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. And by the way, many of us go astray in our heart not on the outward. We come to church on Sunday morning and we look like we're not going astray, but in our hearts we're not believing. Amen? Then he said, They have not known my ways, and as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In other words, they won't get into the promised land. That's Hebrews 3. That's New Testament. gets worse. You ready for this? Hebrews can be a rough book. Then it says, Take care, brothers. Now this is New Testament. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Look what it says. Only murderers are evil. Only mean people are evil. No, what does it call an evil heart? A synonym for an evil heart is what? An unbelieving heart. All right? An evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What? I could fall away from the living God? Yeah, did you read about all those generation of people in the wilderness that just kind of dropped off like flies? Right? Watch what he says. New Testament. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of. And you're being exhorted right now. Praise God, we're all together exhorting and building one one another up in this. You've been given warning. For we have come to share in Christ. This is so convicting. So many people want to say, I'm in Christ. I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. The Bible says you've come to share in Christ if you hold your original confidence firm to the end. They'll say, well, was that person ever saved? Do you believe in eternal security? Blah, 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 blah. Here's the only thing I know. You can't ever give up. If you come to a place where you give up and you're not holding your confidence anymore, I don't know where you're at, but it's probably not a good place. It says, you know in the end that somebody really was in Christ if they held their confidence until they died. Amen? That doesn't mean we don't ever waver. Okay? As it is said, New Testament, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Okay, so who believes that everything we just studied in the book of Numbers and Exodus applies to us today? It's New Testament, people. It is New Testament. All right? Now, last part of the message. Okay, this is the last section. Here's what happens next. What needs to happen before the walls come down? First of all, you've got to take God at his word. You've got to quit believing God's out to kill you, God's out to get you, that he's not in it. He's in it. All right? He's for you. 
Okay? So here they are. Uh, that generation completely dies out. The only two people left from the generation of the wilderness are Caleb and Joshua. Joshua replaces Moses. And the Israelites are going to come and, and they're going to have to take the Canaan land that God promised to them that they're still going to inherit. Amen? No matter what Iran thinks it's trying to do. They're still going to inherit this land. So in the yellow area, um, that's the Jordan River. They're going to have to cross the Jordan River, come in here from the right, go over to the left, and that circled yellow area shows you where Jericho is. So they're going to have to cross the Jordan River, and the first city that God is going to have them take as their spiritual victory is Jericho. Jericho is critical. Read about Jericho in your Bible because Jericho represents your entrance into spiritual victory. Amen? This isn't just an Old Testament story. This is God illustrating what it means to have the strongholds, the things that are holding you back, fall down. Jericho was the first territory that they were to take. So the first thing they got to do is cross the Jordan River. And, of course, for that, God is going to provide another miracle. It's going to be like a mini Red Sea thing, okay? It's not as big as the Red Sea, but it was at flood stages, and they would have never been able to cross had God not parted the Jordan River. They go through the Jordan River. They walk through on dry ground. They see another miracle. It just amazes me that God stays faithful to us when we're such whining, crazy, unbelieving. Well, I'm a jerk. I won't call you one, but jerks. Okay, so... And then here's what's going to happen. They've got to cross the Jordan River, and ultimately what's going to happen is the walls of Jericho are going to fall down to allow them in. And the whole message is what needs to happen before the walls come down. Well, first of all, you've got to believe that God is for you. Amen? He's not out to kill you. You've got to take him at his word. You've got to claim the promise. Right? To claim it, you've got to know it. You've got to read your Bible. You've got to know the promise, and you've got to believe it. Okay. But... Until that happens, there's, two, there's three things that have to take place. As I was uh, praying about this and dealing with it, God emphasized to me three events that took place between the actual falling of the walls of Jericho, the, the key victory that they finally were going to see after they crossed the Jordan River. And here's the things that happened. First of all, all the new generation had to be circumcised. Because all the men of the former generation had died, Nobody except Caleb and Joshua were circumcised according to the covenant that God made with Abraham. So God said, you need to circumcise all your males. Which to me, okay, this is interesting. You're going to go battle all these ites soon. The Amorites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the blah, blah, blah ites, okay? You're going to about to go to battle. And, and Joshua's a military general. So what I want you to do to get you ready for battle is circumcise all the men. Now, I'm not a man. But I'm saying that seems like that would put us at a little disadvantage. Okay? Some people are going to be a little cranky, a little bit in pain. You know what I'm saying? This is weird. But God said do it. And does God ever ask us to do things that seem crazy? Darlene's like, oh, yeah, crazy stuff, crazy stuff. The other day, I was like, go talk to those people sitting in Denny's over there that you don't know, those complete strangers. Go say this to them. <laughs> They're going to think I'm crazy. Well, Shelly, you're crazy anyway. You know, who cares? Now, you, sometimes God's going to ask you to do crazy things. Uh, he, he's going to call you to do something, and you're like, but that seems to go against the plan. Do what God tells you to do. So he circumcised all the males. 
Then they celebrated their first Passover in Canaan, which is really significant because they're in the promised land now. They're on the plains of Jericho, ready to take the first city. And they celebrate their first Passover, which is the what? The remembrance of the, the blood of Jesus. So God's like getting, God's telling them, in my opinion, God's saying here, stay faithful to me, even if you think it's not going to make a lot of sense, right? And then God's saying, and remember, it's all by Jesus. Amen? God's made a way. He's provided it. But here's what I want to emphasize. All that before was not even going to be in my message. My message was going to be the very next point. And then God backed me up and made me go to all that unbelief stuff. I think because I needed it. And you must have needed it too then. Okay, so my, this was going to be the, the main point of my message, but this is very important. The third thing that happened before the walls fell was Joshua encountered the commander of the Lord's army. I get chills. We don't, we don't understand how big and awesome God's word is. And um, I did a message once here. It's on the podcast page of our website in the church, and it's called A Wild and Triune God Revealed. Man, Jesus, he didn't just start to exist when he was born into Mary's womb. Amen? Watch this. It's going to be so beautiful. So Joshua encountered the commander of the Lord's army. So Joshua, picture this in your mind. Joshua is a military general. He knows that he's about to have to take cities over. He doesn't have any clue how that's going to happen. He just knows God said, you're going to go in, going to give you the land to possess it. And he knows that there are very, very strong and mighty ites in the land, and many of them are going to have to be taken down. And I don't, we don't know what Joshua was doing, knowing the kind of man he was. He's on the plains of Jericho overlooking the city. I, we know that his eyes were downward. So he's either really being reflective, right, a serious man. And I think Joshua was very serious-minded, amen. He was either being very reflective, perhaps he was praying, all right, we don't know. But he was being very serious and contemplative about everything that was going to happen. What a huge responsibility, you know, so he's on the plains of Jericho, and here's out of the blue, out of the doggone blue, here's what happens in the Old Testament. I love this. So when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes, and he looked. And behold, a man, he lifted up his eyes, I told you his eyes were downward, a man was standing before him. So his eyes are down. And at some particular moment, a man appears in front of him, and this man had a drawn sword in his hand. Not a sword that was, you know, down in the sheath or in his pocket. He had the sword drawn in his hand like he was ready to go to battle, you know. So here's Joshua, right, military general on enemy territory, knowing God has said you're to take this land, and obviously Joshua believed that. He might have been a little caught off guard, you know, because if it were me, my first thought would be, is he, is he a bad guy? <laughs> you know, like, that's what I call them, bad guys. Okay, right, you know, is he a bad guy or is he a good guy? Like, okay, he, he's, he's in the enemy territory. He's got a drawn sword in his hand. And I'm going to tell you something. Uh, maybe there's a few Bible scholars out there who don't agree with this. The majority do, including A.B. Simpson and many, many others. And I just, I believe it completely. This was Jesus Christ. And people get all rattled about Jesus in the Old Testament, but it's funny. When we find him in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, nobody gets worked up. 
oh, man, I'm glad Jesus was in there walking around with them, you know. That was Jesus, the fourth man in the fire. He looks like the Son of Man. Daniel refers to Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. It was his favorite title for himself. And here, Jesus shows up in the book of Joshua, and it is no wonder why. If anybody needed to have an encounter with Jesus at this point, after celebrating the Passover in honor of Jesus, it was these people about to enter the promised land. Amen? A.B. Simpson said this, This was none other than the Son of God, our victorious leader, who wants to bring us also into the land of promise. If we, like Joshua, will die to our own strength and accept him as our leader and Lord. The other reason I believe this is Jesus is just because of what A.B. Simpson's saying. They celebrated the Passover to remember that it is by the sacrifice of God that we are saved from sin. Amen? But then Jesus shows up to say, and after I save you, I alone. Amen? will bring you into spiritual victory. And I hope you're not bothered with Jesus with a drawn sword in his hand, because if you are, go to Revelation 19. We won't go there now. I don't want to give another freebie and keep you here at 1030. But we could go to Revelation 19. I could preach a whole sermon. There's Jesus in Revelation 19. You know, he's, he's got a sword, the word of God coming out of his mouth. All the birds are in the sky calling, you know, the an angel's calling to the birds in the sky saying, come gather for the great supper of God. And this isn't the wedding supper of the Lamb that you and I will be at. And all the birds start swooning around, and next thing you know, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, strikes down the nations with the sword coming out of his mouth. And all the birds above came down and gorged on the flesh of all the people. Battle of Armageddon. So if you're troubled by the sword drawn in his hand, I want to tell you something. Jesus has a sword. and He will slay the enemy. Amen? He's going to take him down. Not just at the battle of Armageddon. Not just when he throws Satan into the lake of fire. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. That day's coming. He wants to slay the enemy right now tonight in your life. He wants to take that sin you can't get over, that thought pattern you can't get past, that depression, that that thing in front of you that's holding you back from moving forward in God, that disbelief, he wants to slay the enemy in your life right now, just like he appeared to Joshua. He said, here I am, all right? And this is the part I love. So he has a drawn sword, and like I said, if I were Joshua, I'd be wondering what's going on. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? I love Jesus. He is the coolest of the coal. His answers are so amazing. You know, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? What do you think Jesus is going to say? Not what you think. Here's what he said. He, he never says what you think, does he? Are you for us or for our adversaries? Jesus is going to say, no. What? What kind of answer is no? Okay. And he said, no. He didn't answer the question. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Jesus says, no. And it reminds me of my favorite president, Abraham Lincoln. Thank you. Abraham Lincoln was once noted as saying, Sir, I am not concerned about whether God is on my side. What I'm concerned about is to be on God's side because God is always right. So here's what Jesus was saying to Joshua. Hey, buddy, 
I know you belong to me, but I'm not for you or for the enemy. I'm here to take over everyone and everything. Amen? God doesn't limit himself saying, oh, well, Shelly Prindle, yeah, I, I'm going to be in her plan. I'll be in her plan on her side. No, excuse me. Shelly Prindle is on Jesus' side. Amen? So he goes, no, I'm not, I'm not an either. And, and the Believer's Bible commentary says it so beautifully. Christ does not come merely to help us and certainly not to harm us. In other words, he's coming to help us and he's certainly not going to harm us. But what he really comes to do is take over. He takes full control. Dr. Michael Youssef said, I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. So when you're thinking about the enemy in your life or whatever you're facing, don't go to God and be like, well, are you for me or are you for them, God? And Jesus is like, I'm taking over, buddy. This is beautiful, right? And he said, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord, and now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth. And he worshipped and he said to them. And, and this is further proof that this is Jesus because if you read Revelation, I want to say it's 12 or 22, but it's in, in the book of Revelation, when uh, John was tempted to bow down and worship an angel, the angel said, no way. Angels cannot be worshipped, no. Never do you see worship of an angel in the Bible. But this person, this Jesus Christ, accepts the worship. And Joshua says, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua, does this sound familiar to you guys? Take off your sandals from your feet for the place you're standing is holy. Moses in the burning bush. There he is again. And, and this thought, I didn't plan this in my sermon, but this thought just came to me. He came to the burning bush. Those dirty, rotten stinkers would not believe him. And they all had to die off. But he kept the remnant. And he didn't say, well, I'm not going to appear to them anymore. They don't believe me even when I do. What did he do? He came right back and he showed up again. I'm here. Giving you another chance. Amen? Isn't that beautiful? He's the commander of the army of the Lord. And then, in closing, here was the unbelievable command. So here's what God now says. To Joshua, and I want to reiterate what I said this morning. You can research the walls of Jericho. This is this, the walls of Jericho are actually something that great archaeologists have been able to excavate, and they have been able to confirm that these walls fell, and they fell deep into the ground, and that they were huge. The best estimates I can get on average is that these double walls. I mean, these walls were so thick and so big that Rahab's house was on top of the walls. These were massive walls, like 30 feet tall, six feet thick. Okay. And here's what God says. Now, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. Okay, Jericho, the people of Israel were afraid. Isn't that something? They were more afraid of God than his own people believed in him. The people of Jericho, I, I just thought of this. They were afraid of God's people, and God's people thought that they thought they were grasshoppers. Huh? How about that? Okay, so 
They were afraid, and none went out, and none came in. And you can imagine, within the seven or so acres that was inside the walls of Jericho, all of their fighting men, all of their guards, all of their military was probably holed up in there, in their strong walls, thinking, well, they can't get past our walls, so let's be in here and be ready, right? Okay, so here's what God says. He says, see, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day, you're going to march around the city seven times instead of once. The priests will blow the trumpets when they make the long blast with the ram's horn. And you hear that long blast. Then all the people, everyone in the crowd is supposed to shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people will go up, everyone straight before him. God has such a sense of humor. Because I'm thinking about this to myself, you know, and I'm like, okay, so here's the people of Jericho. They're scared. They're actually afraid of the Israelites. They're holed up in these big, gigantic walls. And God tells uh, the great military general, just march around the city seven days. Once a day for six days is good enough. On the seventh day, do it seven times, and then blow the trumpet real long, and that'll be the cue for all you people. And then everybody just shout. Gosh, was probably like, wow, that's interesting. And he obeyed. But I want to ask you a question. If you were Joshua and the people of Israel, would you have been a little bit like, I wonder how this is going to go? You know, like, could you imagine them in their great humility just marching around the walls? Not raising a sword, not shooting a gun walking walking around the walls and can you imagine the people inside Jericho they can hear them start to stomp like all these hundreds of thousands they're stomping all around the walls of Jericho and they hear them and they're probably like in there going oh my gosh what do they have they're surrounding us they're surrounding us all they're probably in there getting all ready clenched fist and then they hear them marching and marching then they're like wait a second I think they made a complete circle Gosh, they're walking away. <laughs> okay, so what are the people in Jericho thinking? This was probably a psychological teaser, wasn't it? And the next day it happens again. I mean, put yourself in the place of what was going on. So the next day, and, and the whole time, Joshua's probably trying to tell the people, trust me on this, this is what God said. It seems foolish. Hey, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So if God tells you, If God says, Sue, what I want you to do is I just really want you to pray and seek me for a month. And don't try to do anything in your own flesh and believe that I can do things in the unseen world. And maybe that's what you're supposed to do. Amen? And maybe it takes great humility to just resign yourself and say, this isn't about what I can do. This is about God showing me what he can do. Amen? Maybe that was what it was about. So that was the unbelievable command. And here was the unbelievable but real result. And remember, as I said this morning in the announcements, the God who made the atoms and the molecules of the brick and the mortar of those walls can certainly work at a subatomic level to disintegrate them anytime he chooses. And then, just like he's going to take the particles of your body after they've been dead and in the grave for many years and resurrect them. Amen? He can disassemble and he can reassemble. Right? So watch this. So the people shouted... And the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, boy, I can't wait for the sound of the next trumpet. 
Huh? How about that? When the trumpet of the Lord sounds and the dead in Christ shall rise. And when the people, they, they shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. They didn't use one bit of physical weaponry, nothing, no bombs, no cannons. Just what? Obedience. Obedience is stronger than any weapon you will ever find on the face of the earth. You want to take the enemy down? Obey God. He'll fall flat on his stinking, rotten face. Amen? And they captured the city, by the way. They didn't just go in. They took possession. Here's the sword that you and I need to pick up. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's high time the Church of Jesus Christ just took God at His simple Word. No matter what it means, right? Charles Spurgeon, before I put his quote up, I'm going to close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon before I pray. Um, This sermon has really done for me an amazing thing, you know. And since I've written the sermon, I've gone through numerous past trials and tribulations to see if I would believe that God is for me and not against me, right? That he won't bring you out to die. The main point is if the walls are going to come down, You've got to believe that God is in this. You've got to take him at his word. No matter what it looks like, right? Just take him at his word. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I believe it's so true. He said, in fact, if there can be one sin more heinous than the unbelief of a sinner. So he's saying, if there's any sin that's worse than the ultimate sin of unbelief and damnation to hell, okay, it is the unbelief of a saint. Think about that. For a saint to doubt God's word, for a saint to distrust God after innumerable instances of his love, after 10,000 proofs of his mercy, well, that just exceeds everything. Amen? For a saint to distrust God, after all, the thing that damns men and women's souls to hell is refusing to believe in God. In Jesus Christ. And so certainly there will be trouble for me as a believer. Imagine. I posted that to Facebook one day after I wrote this message. I said, after all, the word believer does mean a believer. Okay? It's much worse for me then if I don't believe that my God is going to take care of me. Amen? So if you want to see the walls come down in any area of your life, Take him at his word. Don't die in the wilderness. I plead with you, don't die in the wilderness. Right? Would you bow your heads with me?